Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. God, our our hope, as Jay said, our hope can so easily be diverted from you and onto other things. Our eyes are pulled in so many directions, to the right and to the left, without even knowing it and with the best intentions of the wor- in the world, we can take our eyes off of you. But the promise of the Bible, the promise that we see in Jesus, is that when we put our eyes on you, Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, When we put our eyes on you, we experience a love and a life and a joy and a peace and all these incredible things that give us a vibrancy and a flourishing that we haven't experienced. And so, Lord, as we continue in our series today, as we explore another topic about relationships, uh, would you meet every person in this room, regardless of what they think about you? Whether they're here and they're like, ah, I'm not so sure about the whole God thing. Or whether they're here and they know you intimately right now. Would you meet them? Would you show yourself to them and would you invite them further into a relationship with you? With the right step for them. We love you, God. We're so grateful for who you are and that all of our trust, all of our hope is not in ourselves nor is it in anyone else nor is it in any system or any governance. Our hope is in you, Jesus, in your love and in your power. So it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, if you are joining us for the first time, we have just kicked off a new series a couple weeks ago that uh, we titled Lies We Love and How They're Killing Us. Lies We Love and How They're Killing Us. The idea behind this series is that we wanna explore relationships, right? February and March, it's a great time to explore our relationships. Significant others, um, friends, siblings, parents, colleagues. Our life is nothing more nor less than, than the, the basis of our relationships. And the, the, what we're sort of um, postulating is that we receive, I don't know why I just use the word postulate in a sermon. Good gracious. Um, but uh, what we're sort of uh, postulating is that the, the narratives that we receive from our society might not be the best advice to lead us into strong and healthy relationships. They might be lies. And instead, when we want to hold these up next to uh, the advice and the, the narrative that we receive in Scripture, in the story of Jesus, and say, if God is truly three in one, if God says, if you want to know me, call me love, if that's the essence of God, then maybe he knows something better. Maybe he knows a better way about relationships. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been exploring these lies and also how they might be killing us and then offering up what Jesus would say to them. And today's lie that we want to look at is whether we should trust our feelings or always trust our feelings. We're looking at our emotional reasoning here. Now, I should start with a little caveat I am a type three on the Enneagram. Any type threes in the room? Yes. 
Y'all know what I'm saying? We are in the middle of the feeling triad. We feel deeply. We feel so deeply. My family is Irish. That also, you know, that, 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 that makes it hard. We feel a lot. I'm literally reading a book right now on how God took the story of Jesus through missionaries to the Celtic people. And it says early on that the missionaries, they realized that the, the, the Celtic people are a very passionate lot. And so they had to appeal to their emotions. So I feel a lot. My wife, Anna, she comes from a German heritage. She doesn't feel as much. We always wonder how this works. I'm constantly feeling things. And she's like, I feel nothing right now. So it makes for a fun marriage. It makes for a fun marriage. But we do. We have our emotions and relationships, right? And we want to ask, well, how do we wade through these? How do we trust or not trust them? And, and that can come from the trivial, right? Uh, any Settlers of Catan fans in here? A couple? Yeah, I love Settlers of Catan. My brothers and my dad and I, again, remember, we're Irish. Uh, we play Settlers of Catan, and stuff gets real when we play. Uh, we have Catan in our world is a completely unregulated market. There are no rules. So we're trading in futures. We're like, all right, I'll give you one sheet now. You give me two weeks in the future. We're trading in conditional port usage. We're manipulating the usage of the robber. If that made no sense to you, I'll teach you how to play Catan. It'll be great. But that can be trivial because maybe I'll get super angry at my brother and be like, oh, should I trust that? Is he actually out to get me in this life? Or, or our emotions, we can feel our emotions for the mildly concerning such as when our friend comes back after a first date and they're like, she was the one. I'm buying a ticket to Paris and we're eloping. And you're like, all right, maybe let's just have a pint of ice cream first. Let's talk about this. The mildly concerning to the very serious. When Anna and I are having a conversation and emotionally we just feel completely distant from each other. And we've done all the right work and we're being very healthy adults about this. But emotionally, we just feel distance and loneliness. Well, do we trust that emotion? What does that mean? Does that mean this relationship isn't working out? We feel all sorts of things and we have to figure out how do we interpret them? What do they mean? How do they relate in our relationships? Are they trustworthy or not? Now, a brief history, because I, I really uh, looked at the history um, two, two Sundays ago, but a brief history about our environment and our society. I think it is safe to say that you and I, we live in what Danish philosopher Sven Brinkman calls a cult of emotional authenticity. A cult of emotional authenticity. Um, actually, uh, um, uh, one of my friends, just to prove this point, one of my friends, her ex-boyfriend was a, uh, a busboy at Chili's, and he got fired. And the reason why he got fired is because he would go to the tables to, to bust the dishes, and he had just this scowl on his face. And the customers complained. They're like, he's not happy. And so his boss came to him and was like, hey, we, we need you to, to smile a little bit more. And literally what he said is, that wouldn't be authentic. And, you know, I'm sure the manager at Chili's were like, well, authentic or not, you're fired. <laughs> we need you to smile. But that just sort of epitomizes what we all uh, are taught to believe, that we live in this cult of emotional authenticity, 
The most important thing we can do is be emotionally authentic. Emotionally authentic. And the reasons for that are manifold. I talked about the self-esteem curriculum that you and I grew up with. And in this self-esteem curriculum, it was this all about trusting yourself, knowing yourself, and that no one can tell you what is most true about yourself. Which means my emotions are trustworthy and are more trustworthy than your wisdom, your counsel, or my community, right? We talked about how this view of how we raise children in our society uh, shifted. We used to view children as anti-fragile, which means they need stressors, they need setbacks, they need problems to make them more resilient and stronger, to learn and adapt and grow. Now, we view children as fragile, which means they need to be protected from things that could break them. So we live in this age where, as Gene Twinge, the psychologist, puts it, we are anchoring our sense of self in our emotions. We are anchoring our sense of self in our emotions. I don't want to rehash how we got here. Rather, what I want to do is ask the question, should we trust them? Should we trust our feelings? And the short answer I want to suggest um, is no, we should not. But why? Well, the world is pretty deceptive right now. And each of these points, I'm just going to sort of list out three quick ones. We could list out a bunch more and we could expound on all of them. But the world is really deceptive right now. We are living in what Chris Hedges calls, calls an illusion of spectacle. And three main things get at that. First is social media. We are living in an illusion of spectacle. So much of our society, whether relationships, brands, businesses, are mediated through social media. And social media, 95% of the time, is a lie. Now, I have an Instagram. I actually just got one, which is really interesting. I don't know why I did it, but I got one. Um, but social media often is a lie, either a lie of commission or a lie of omission. What do I mean by that? Well, a lie of commission is literally the person posting the photo on Instagram knows that they are intentionally warping the angles, they're putting on filters, they are intentionally manipulating the photo. They are intentionally misleading you. That's a lie of commission. The lie of omission is not, I take a photo and I post it, I'm not trying to lie to you, this is a real moment, this happened. But we omit many other moments that are happening in our lives. So if I scroll through your feed, I'm like, wow, you are a really happy person. I, very spontaneous, all of you guys are super spontaneous. Very lighthearted, positive about all things. You, you guys are killing it right now. You're not intentionally lying to me. You're just leaving out a lot of details as well. It's a lie of omission. Now, here's the crazy thing that Jean Twinge found. She found in her team that we all know, we all know that we're not posting the full story. And yet, crazily, we don't believe that for others. <laughs> we actually believe that they are posting the full story. We actually believe that they are as successful and as happy and as fun and are crushing it as much as their Instagram says they are. And so what are our feelings that are generated from social media? Well, two mainly, FOMO, 
It's a real thing, fear of missing out. We see these photos and we feel like we are being excluded from this community. So we have this fear of missing out. Those are the feelings that are generated. Or, on the other hand, this feeling of being trapped. And those are the feelings of, of those who are the influencers on social media, who are constantly posting something that they know isn't the full truth. They know it's a mask, but they feel trapped. They don't know how to get out. Twinge, in her book, iGen, she looks at these, these surveys that they have given um, 8th graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders. And they've given them these surveys from the 1980s to the 2000s. And they ask questions about, like, how satisfied are you with yourself? Um, how, how do you view yourself? Do you like your life? And from the 1980s until 2010, it was always on the rise. And then about 2012, we started seeing the first stark decline. And it's continued to decline from 2012 to the present day. So that most uh, notably, what Twinge hears in her team is teenagers, 8th, 10th, and 12th graders say, this is what they say, I often feel left out, I feel lonely, I feel like I can't do anything right, I feel useless, I feel inferior to others, I feel like my friends have a better life than me. Those are the normal feelings now. Those are the normal feelings. This feeling of uselessness have reached all-time highs. And here's why this is problematic, guys. Because we've created a society that is fiercely individualistic, that says, I'm going to trust my emotions above everything else. I'm going to trust my feelings above anything else. And yet, simultaneously, we've created tools like smartphones and social media that make us all feel terrible about ourselves. We are in a pickle. <laughs> so that's the first reason why I would caution you against trusting your feelings. Because social media has a part to play. The second reason, we live in a society of entertainment. Guys, I know I've quoted this book before. If you have never read Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, go read it. It is phenomenal. And I'm going to read a, a, a big chunk from it right here. But tell me if this doesn't ring true to you. In America, Postman writes, everyone is entitled to an opinion, and it is certainly useful to have a few when a pollster shows up. But these opinions are of quite a different writer from 18th or 19th century opinions. It's probably more accurate to call them emotions rather than opinions, which would account for the fact that they change from week to week, as the pollsters tell us. What is happening here is that television, or just substitute television for internet, because this was written in 1985, television is altering the meaning of being informed by creating a species of information that might properly, properly be called disinformation or fake news. I am using this word almost in the precise sense in which it is used by spies in the CIA or KGB. Disinformation does not mean false information, it means misleading information, misplaced, irrelevant, fragmented, superficial information, information that creates the illusion of knowing something, but which in fact leads a one away from knowing. In saying this, I do not mean to imply that television news deliberately aims to deprive Americans of a coherent contextual understanding of their world. I mean to say, 
that when news is packaged as entertainment, that is the inevitable result. And in saying that the television news show entertains but does not inform, I am saying something far more serious than we are being deprived of authentic information. I am saying we are losing our sense of what it means to be well informed. Ignorance is always correctable. But what shall we do if we take ignorance to be knowledge? Guys, America is a culture of entertainment. We are. Everything is packaged as entertainment. Entertainment is what makes us great. Again, entertainment binds us together. Entertainment gives us a collective identity. We are entertained. What binds the American people? Well, did you watch the Super Bowl? Oh, have you heard this new album? Oh, are you watching that show? Oh, are you on YouTube? Entertainment is what binds us together, not religion. Religion at one time bound the people together, not politics that bound people together. Everything is geared toward us being entertained. But here's the thing about entertainment. Entertainment does not care if it's telling you the truth or if it's telling you a lie. That's not the premise of entertainment. Entertainment cares about one thing. Is it making you feel good or is it making you feel bad? It is premised on pleasure, not discomfort. So things that don't make us feel good, like hard intellectual discussions, on complex, complex issues where people disagree, things that don't make us feel good are viewed as untrustworthy or given no attention. Therefore, the most powerful people in our society are not the experts, but the entertainers. Our society is awash in entertainment. So if they don't care about whether they're telling us the truth or not, they just want to make us feel good and not bad. And that's in us. And the last thing I would say about why we shouldn't intrinsically trust our emotions, social media isn't helping, we're a society of entertainment. I'm just gonna get a little conspiratorial on all of us, only it's not. They got your data, guys. They got your data. They know how to make you feel exactly what they want. As Postman writes, the television commercial is not at all about the character of products to be consumed. It is about the character of the consumers of the products. And yes, I just bought that Groupon to Bermuda. Alexander Nix, who was the former CEO of Cambridge Analytica, and if you don't know who Cambridge Analytica is, go watch The Great Hat on Netflix. And just to give a little reference, Cambridge Analytica was hired by both the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign in 2016. And he's basically, Cambridge Analytica is data science. He claimed way back in the day that they have 5,000 data points on each person right now. And he was not being hyperbolic. There's nothing authentic about what we feel. We are being manufactured and manipulated to feel a certain way. In a sense, they know where you are, they know what you'll be doing, and they know what you'll be feeling about what you're doing before you're even doing it. That is the world we live in. So just to bring that all together, we are inundated by entertainment, our relationships are mediated through digital means, 
Our emotions are manipulated by those who have our data. We are a society of spectacle and illusion that provokes strong emotional responses and breeds distrust. And our education encourages us to trust our emotional responses above anything else. What do we do? How do we relate with people if our emotions are so fickle and so manipulable? And we're trained, we're trained to be entertained and trust them. What if a relationship isn't entertaining anymore? What do we do with that? What if a relationship gets hard, gets difficult? What if hard stuff comes out in it? That's definitely discomforting. What do we do? What's our way forward? Well, here's what I'd say. The first thing I wanna tell you, and it's gonna seem really obvious, but stay with me. You are not your emotions. You are a body. You are not your emotions. You are a body. And there is a relationship between the two. One of the most fascinating things in modern neuroscience that's come out over the last hundred years is this relationship between our bodies and our emotions, our feelings. And there are tons of experiments I can point you to. I'm just gonna use one, because it's really fascinating. There's a neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio. And uh, he did an experiment with subjects that was kind of complicated, but basically he gave them decks of cards. And some of the decks um, were what he would say are profitable decks, they're safe decks, and some of the decks were very risky decks. But the subject, does not know which decks are which. He does this experiment where they're drawing cards and all of that, and they're, they're, they're experiencing the risk and the profitability of it. But what he's monitoring is their body's response to the decks. And here's what he found. Catch this, this is so incredible. It took a subject, on average, 80 cards, eight zero, 80 cards before they could understand and articulate the game to you. Around card 80, they're like, oh, I understand how the game works. It took a subject 50 cards, 5-0, before they understood which decks to pull from and which decks to avoid, but they couldn't articulate it yet. Their body understood how the game worked, they just couldn't, they didn't have the language for it, they hadn't processed it yet. But here's what's so phenomenal. After only 10 cards, 10, the subject's hand would get nervous and twitch when it reached for the negative deck. After only 10 cards, what he proved is that our bodies go first, our emotions follow later. As Henry James writes about seeing a bear and the fear that would feel us if we saw a bear, he writes, what kind of an emotion of fear would be left if the feeling of quickened heartbeats, nor of shallow breathing, neither of trembling lips, nor of weakened limbs, neither of goosebumps, nor of visceral stirrings were present. Without the body, there would be no fear. For an emotion begins at the perception of a bodily change. In other words, from our muscles, we steal our moods. Your emotions follow your body's choices and activities. Why is this important? Well, on an individual and practical level, guess what studies show 
when people put down their phones and go take walks with real people. You know what they show? They're happier. They enjoy their lives more. They actually are really positive. They're less lonely. Guess what studies show when we consume less news, which is really entertainment, and let our bodies move at a slower pace. Let them practice Sabbath and silence and stillness and real face-to-face conversations. Guess what studies show? We feel more peace. We acknowledge, oh, I actually have a lot of peace in my body. Our moods, our emotions stalk our muscles. Your body goes first. Your emotions follow. So I've said this before. Often people say, hey, I fell in love. I felt this feeling of love and then I had sex. And and there's some truth in that. Maybe you felt some compatibility, some attraction. But it's just as equally true to say the inverse. No, your body's had sex. They released this chemical called oxytocin, a bonding agent, and that gave you the emotion and feeling of falling in love. It's just as true. Our bodies get a say in our emotions, our feelings. The hand knew that this was a negative card before they could acknowledge that they felt fear or they felt nervousness going for it. And I want to be clear about this because you will never hear me. I I have been to counseling. I am a big believer in talking about mental health and not allowing it to be stigmatized. I will be on the front lines of that. I love counseling. I think it's super good. And there are um, people who struggle from anxiety and depressive disorders. Absolutely. But there are some of us who just need to put down our phones and go for a walk. And both are true. Both are true. So what does this mean on a relational level? What does this mean if our bodies go first and our moods follow? Well, God knows this. Of course he does. He made us. So when God wants to communicate to you and to me, when God wants to communicate his love and elicit our trust in him, he doesn't give us a news segment. He doesn't give us a tweet or an Instagram post. What does he give us? He gives us a body that our bodies can engage with. And this is what we read from 1 John, the letter of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is what they open their letter with. This is what they say. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. When God wanted to communicate to us, He did not do it through mental osmosis. He didn't do it through emotional manipulation. Rather, he took on a body. He lived a very physical life. He died a very physical death. And he was raised as a very physical resurrection. And the disciples, when they were garnering and trying to understand what all this meant, when their emotions were trying to process all of this, what did they trust? 
They trusted not what they felt. They trusted what they saw, heard, touched, and tasted. They trusted what they engaged with. They saw Jesus of Nazareth healing diseases. They heard him teaching in a way that really made them uncomfortable and confused them, but also brought a lot of joy, elicited a lot of freedom. They saw him touching people through hugs and watched him as he embraced children, the bleeding and the lepers, those who were the social outcasts. They tasted the bread and the wine that he gave as he said it was his very self. And out of that, out of those sensings, out of what they saw and touched and heard and tasted, they felt moved and inspired and unnerved and maybe titillated, like they're on the verge of something big. Maybe this was card, I don't know, 15, where their bodies are starting to get really nervous, but they can't explain to you how the game's going to work yet. They're not at card 50 where the joy dawns, and they're like, oh, I know which deck to pick from. They're still card 15. Like, I, I'm feeling really nervous, but also really excited, and I don't know why. They saw him bleeding out on the cross. They felt the injustice of the sham trial. They heard him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They felt they had lost a dear friend whom they loved and whom they had betrayed. They felt their sense of betrayal because their bodies had run away. They saw and touched the cold stone of an empty tomb. They heard a man in white say, Jesus isn't here. He was raised and he's gone on ahead of you to Galilee. They felt extreme fear and lightheadedness from that. Shock and terror, unable to process what this all meant. Then they saw a man who appeared in their midst and looked just like him. They felt fear and terror because the doors were locked. How did he get through? Touch me, he said. Look at my hands and my side. Do ghosts have flesh and blood as you see I do? They reached out their hands and touched his scars and watched him as he ate fish. They listened as he taught for 40 days and then disappeared from their sight. They fasted and they prayed, seeking God's glory and his presence. And then they experienced a wind rush over their bodies and a presence fill them with love and power. They wrote and they spoke about all these things, things that they didn't feel, things that they saw and heard and touched and tasted, and they prayed for yours and my body to experience the touch of the presence of God. And God showed up. They experienced, they felt the sting of persecution as they were fed to lions and sawed in half and used as lamps for giant parties burned alive. Their bodies experienced martyrdom and they refused to honor any other kingdom any other gods that replaced the relationship they had with the true God found in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. They wrote these things down so that you could have fellowship with them and that your joy would be made complete. Guys, what do we do if we don't trust our emotions and our feelings? We trust the body of Jesus. We put our trust in his story 
What would it look like to take your eyes off of yourself and your own emotions? Take your eyes off of other people and put them on the body and the life of Jesus and watch what follows. Well, you'll see that the tomb is empty and you'll feel bewildering joy, unable to process what this means. You'll hear that Jesus has been raised from the dead and you'll feel a peace that comes from knowing that nothing can keep you away from him. You'll see the sacrifice of Jesus and you'll feel the love of a God who says, you're worth that. I would die to save you. You'll hear how Jesus was steady with his disciples, despite how dumb they were, and they were dumb. And you'll feel the patience and the kindness of knowing that Jesus is going to be patient with you too. It doesn't mean that our feelings won't fluctuate. Of course they will, because we're humans. It does mean that Jesus' actions are stable and the rock that we put our trust in. They ground us into the life and presence of God. We don't anchor ourselves in our emotions because our emotions are unstable. They're unreliable. But we also recognize that from our muscles, we steal our moods. Emotions come from bodies. So where do we anchor ourselves? If not in our emotions or even our body, we anchor ourselves in Jesus' body. We anchor our sense of self, our eyes, our ears, what we smell, what we taste, not in us, but in his story, in his body, in God. And from his muscles, from him, we receive our moods. When we recognize what his body has done and what it means for us, then that begins to fill us with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And then that will begin to rewire how we relate with each other. Because what would it look like, guys, when your hearts say and feel like you're worthless, if you looked at Jesus' body and heard him say, well, I came and died for you, so I say you're full of a lot of worth. What would it look like when you feel like, oh, I just failed. I failed. And Jesus' body says, well, I was raised to life. I succeeded. Therefore, your failure can't hold you back from me. What would it look like when, you're, when your emotions say, I'm unlovable. No one loves me. I feel unlovable. And Jesus' body says, well, look at me on the cross. I came. I gave up intimacy with God to prove to you, to tell you how much I love you. You're not unlovable. What would it look like for that to, to trust that and allow that emotion to fill us? Or when our friend betrays us, what would it look like to look at Jesus' body that was betrayed by his closest friends too? And he did not return that betrayal with betrayal or vengeance. He returned that betrayal with forgiveness and love and compassion. Would that not fill us with the ability to forgive, to not return betrayal with betrayal? 
What would it look like if our spouse is emotionally unavailable, not in a healthy place at all, but Jesus's body says, I have given you my heart. Come rest with me. Come receive what you need from me. I'm emotionally available. And then after we receive the fullness of that, of a love and, and, and joy and peace from him, then we can go love our spouse as our committed covenant partner as we vowed to them. Not needing from them because we've received it from Jesus. What would it look like if a colleague cheats you and you look at Jesus' body that was cheated out of life and yet in its stead he offered patience and love and steadfastness so that can fill you to do the same. Do you get what I'm saying? Our emotions aren't independent realities that come from our minds. Our emotions come from our bodies. They stalk our muscles. But our bodies can be unreliable and other people's bodies who are in relationship with, they can be unreliable. So where do we get our emotions from? We get it from Jesus' body, which is very reliable. In his story, life, death, and resurrection, we see the perfection of the human condition. And the more we gaze upon him, the more those emotions fill us and allow us to engage with our world in our relationships as he would. Guys, God is literally using cognitive behavioral therapy on us. Whatever your emotion, how it rises up to speak against you, relationships or otherwise, God is intercepting that and saying, no, no, no. Don't start spiraling. Don't start catastrophizing. Don't go there. Look to me. Look to me. Look to that which you can see and hear and touch and taste. Look to the hands. Look to the side. Look to the feet. Look to the offer of bread and wine. Look. Look and receive. Let that change how you feel about yourself and about others. I'm going to invite the band back up. And I want to close in a prayer. It's interesting how God does this. Because as I shared earlier, just yesterday, it was revealed to me ways that I wasn't looking at God. Ways that I was putting my trust in humans. And there's a difference between trusting people and putting your trust in people. There's a difference between loving people and making the basis of your existence, the purpose of your life, their love for you. There's a difference between those things. And the promise of Jesus, the promise of the gospel, when you encounter someone who is just so full of love, joy, and gentleness, and self-control, and patience, and all the things that we want, inevitably it's because the eyes of their heart are not on you, not firstly, and not on others, but are on him. They are receiving from his body all the emotions that fill them and transform them, that allow them to go and to love you. So pray with me. God, we, uh, I just want to pray for anyone in this room that feels very lonely. And I'm sure there are a lot. 
We live in an increasingly isolated society. And we live in a society that even though our tools make it so isolated, we're still told to be self-reliant and independent and not to trust anyone. And so for anyone here who feels that loneliness, my prayer is that right now, they would take the eyes of their heart, lonely eyes, off of themselves and put them on the image of Jesus bleeding out on the cross. Jesus coming out of the tomb. Jesus who looks them in their eyes and says, I came just for you. I came and died just for you. Nothing will separate you from my love. You're not alone. I will always be with you. Always. No matter what you do, no matter what happens to you, I will always be with you. You're never alone. And Lord, whatever people are feeling in this room, whatever their emotion is, loneliness or unworthiness, or a relationship that is empty, whether they feel shame or anger, whatever it is, God, right now, would they take the eyes of their heart off themselves or off of the person who hurt them and put their eyes of their heart on you and receive the inrushing of grace and forgiveness and peace. Thank you, God, that we don't put our trust in any human. Thank you, God, that we don't put our trust in any situation, any kingdom. Our trust the deepest trust of our hearts, of our life and our death, is only in you, Jesus. Remind us of that today. For it's in your living name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? And as you consider what's filling your heart right now, would you sing a song of response to God who is here with you? To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.